Are you just so stunned by the poem? The poem? No? Did you read it? <laughs> My goodness. How many people are ready for the quiz on Mont Blanc? <laughs> Four? Okay, good. Um, you thought, okay. Okay, yeah, you need to finish it. Um, you need to figure out what happens at the end of Neuromancer. Um, all right. So, we were doing our whirlwind tour of Kant, you may recall. Um, I'm still thinking about the rest of the semester, and I think they'll be um, less than on the syllabus, a little bit less, uh, so there'll be a little bit more time to talk, for example, about contour and um, transfinite numbers. Did you do, what did you talk about um, in contour on Monday? Uh, Last Monday, a week, nine days ago. That's okay. How Kant and Cantor are kind of opposed to each other, like how they're on opposite sides, how Cantor is more in line with like Aristotle and how Kant is, uh, yeah, Kant is like the opposite of that. Okay, so but you didn't do you didn't do the diagonalization. No. Okay, so that's something we'll do. Yeah. So remember, I will remind you what the two questions on the take-home exam are going to be. Um, the first one is to prove that the square root of 2 is irrational, which is what we did in class a couple of weeks ago. Do, um, well, pretend it's rational and see the trouble you get into. We'll go over it again. Um, it's also a podcast. You don't get the diagrams on the board, but you don't really need them. Or ask one of your friends in the class. Or ask one of your friends. Um, and the second is how you prove there's more than one order of infinity. Um, so we will start doing that on Monday. Um, but today, um, we'll start talking about Mont Blanc. Maybe finish it. Who knows? Um, although, given the, how few of you have actually read it, that kind of means we have to go through the whole poem line by line, which is a good thing. Um, how long did we spend on it, Isabel, in uh, English 11? Yeah, yeah, and but you looked happy, Abby, that we were doing it again. Good. Um, see, that's what happens if you if you spend some time. But we spent more time on Auden. On Auden, yeah, I think we spent more time on Auden. Um, an easier poem, but still. Okay. Uh, so where we were yesterday, uh, yesterday Monday, where we were yesterday was recovering from Monday. Where we were Monday, talking about Kant was um, to talk mainly about the first critique, that is the critique of pure reason, um, which is an account of how it is that we can make sense of the world, make it coherent, have a coherent um, idea or view of the world. Oh, my God, a bear. No, it's that same black dog. Um, who thought it was a bear? Yeah. Really? Oh, my goodness, sheep. No, there are other little black dogs. Okay. They're cute. But not so cute that you shouldn't be devoting your life to the exclusive provinces of thought. Okay. Why? I think puppies are a good uh, opponent for pure thought. 
Yeah, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. In, in some White ways, they are what the thought is. What? White beret guy. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> All right. So, um, what we saw in talking about the critique of pure reason um, was that we do make sense of the world and we make sense of it um, with the concept of causality. That is, the way we can tell the difference, you could say, between space and time. This is putting it very, very, um, in a very compressed manner. But the way you can tell the difference between a flux of sensations that occurs because something is happening in time and a flux of sensation that occurs not because something is happening in time, but simply because all sensation occurs in a flux. Therefore, a flux of spatial sensations that are simply occurring because of our perception of space is that some we cause and some we don't, but are caused, therefore, by something outside of ourselves. And Kant's example of that, again, is the boat going down the stream causes the different sensations, the different visions, the different view, views and viewpoints we have of that boat. Whereas the house that's standing still, the different parts of the house that we see in um, as time goes by is caused by our own um, causal changes in attention. We look at the roof, we look at the door, we look at the windows and so on. Yeah? But doesn't he take issue with Yes, he does, but what he says is that we need that concept, we can't do without that concept in order to make sense of what he calls appearance. So it's how the world appears to us may not be true. In fact, he says it isn't true, that space is um, something that belongs to appearance it's space is subjective. It's how we are seeing the world rather than what we are seeing in the world. This is a crucial idea in Kant, a very hard idea, again, I think made easier through the concept of cyberspace, but an idea which is crucially like or comes crucially out of what Descartes is saying about ether versus empty space. So if you remember that the reason Descartes fills space with ether is to say that if it were really nothing, then there would be no such thing as distance. Two things couldn't be distant from each other because there would be nothing between them. And when we say when, two, when there's nothing between two things, they're actually next to each other. That makes sense. If space is really nothing, then two things couldn't be distant from each other. That's Descartes' view. So what does he do? He says, well, space isn't nothing. It is filled with ether, with this very attenuated but nevertheless real thing called ether. Um, Einstein would show that he was wrong. Um, there's some people who think he's not entirely wrong, um, but they have a view of ether which is consistent with Einstein, which is to say ether is almost nothing, as close to nothing as you can be. Um, but if the idea that Descartes had, if the historical, um, philosophical idea that it's really hard to think about space as nothingness. Um, we think it's easy until we start trying to think what the implications of that are. 
Um, if we let Descartes raise a really deep philosophical question of the sort that I was urging um, you all to think about earlier in the semester. Um, why is it that mirrors reflect um, reverse left and right but not up and down? Just questions which, if you think about them, become hard, of which Zeno asks the hardest. How can Achilles um, catch up with the tortoise? Descartes is asking a similar question, which is, can space be empty? Um, what is there if there's nothing there? And to simply answer empty space is to say, well, there is something there, empty space. And Descartes says, yeah, I agree there's something there, there. empty space, which we call ether. That's what empty space has to be, because if there were really nothing there, there wouldn't be empty space. Here's another example of this, um, which I hope is helpful to you. We think of people who can't see. We think of blindness. Some of you may have read or, um, Saramago's great novel, Blindness, or seen the movie. Um, but you think of blindness as... Um, what it is for most people who go blind as adults as an experience of darkness or of blankness or in Saramago it's an experience of whiteness. That is the entire world whites out into just a kind of white nothingness um, everywhere. Um, like the blankness of a screen that isn't receiving a signal um, but all you get is white noise as, as it's sometimes called. Um, so that's our general sense of blindness. And what you can understand, maybe, if you think about blindness that way, is that that's not real blindness. It's blind in one sense, which is you're not seeing what's going on in the world. But it's not blind in a Kantian sense, because even if you close your eyes, and think of that as what blindness would be like, is having your eyes always closed, actually you have a visual field. And it's a dark visual field, black, if you're not playing eyelid movies. You can imagine pure blackness surrounding you. That tends to be how sighted people think of blindness. Saramago thinks of it as pure white surrounding you. Um, but there is still a visual field. It has a color, black or white, something that we would call a color, that we could put in a color spectrum. It has dimensions. It's two, we tend to think of it as two-dimensional. Um, so blindness, the way we think of it there, is something that is a visual field, even if we see nothing. We're actually not seeing nothing. We're seeing something. We're seeing whiteness or blackness or whatever it is that we're seeing. Um, so if you think of empty space as being like space devoid of anything to see in it, that that's what we think of as empty space, we're thinking of it the way we think of the visual field. Now think about the difference between what you can see out of your eyes, all of you being sighted people, what you can see out of your eyes and what you can see out of your knees. So what do your knees see? Now, profoundly blind people, people who are blind from birth or people who are blind from early childhood, they lose, almost all of them, lose all visual processing. That is to say, what they see in front of their eyes is what we see in front of our knees. Not blackness, not whiteness, not blankness, not an absence 
of things in front of their eyes, they really see nothing, which is to say they see the way you see out of your knees. They're not looking around and not finding objects in a visual field. They have no visual field. And this is a hard thing to think because for sighted people, vision is so omnipresent. It is and tends to be the way we interact with space. And so we tend to think of blindness as just empty space. But what Descartes is saying is if space were really empty, it would be the space you see with your knees or with your toes or with your um, wrists. No, because you still don't see out of your knees. Grasshoppers, I, I pick knees because grasshoppers have their ears in their knees. Um, it's not a joke, it's a fact. What's the joke? Uh, the joke is that um, they fear using their legs because there's an experiment in which two cages of grasshoppers were exposed to loud music. Um, uh, the control group, they were hopping a lot because of the loud music but the group with their legs taken away were not hopping at all. They weren't responding to the music. Therefore, they must hear through their, <laughs> through their legs knees. and they yeah. hear the music. Yeah, okay. That <laughs> yes. Yeah, Carol. Like butterflies can taste what they're eating. And I think maybe also butterflies can have like light reflect, uh, like really rudimentary um, uh, like eye things on their genitals. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so this is it. So these are things. There's a very famous article in philosophy, actually, by a man named Thomas Nagel called "What Is It Like to Be a Bat," and um, it's a really important article about the idea of um, understanding um, something about completely different sensory relations to the world, even though you can't picture or understand what those sensory relations would be, um, like what they're about. Um, and that question, what is it like to be a bat? You can also say, we can ask what would it be like to see out of your knees or what would it be like to see, um, with other parts of your body, and we could probably come up with some sense of an answer, but also not. Um, but Descartes' idea, um, or a way of making Descartes' idea vivid, is to say that what really it would mean for there to be empty space would be what it would really mean to be blind, which is not to have a visual field at all. Now, if you turn that around and say what Kant is saying is that we do, most people, all sighted people, and probably about half of blind people, do have visual fields. Even if those visual fields are empty, even if your eyes are gouged out like Gloucester in what play? All right. Even if your eyes are gouged out, you still have a visual field. Um, if you, sorry? Oedipus, yes. Yeah. Okay, if you blind yourself, you still have a visual field. But even if your eyes are gouged out, you still have a visual field. Why? Because a visual field is something generated by the mind, by the brain. And what's in the visual field 
is something that the outside world can affect. But even if there's nothing in the visual field, that is, you have no eyes, so there's nothing that your eyes are failing to see, because you have no eyes to fail to see them, you still have a visual field. So again, the idea is the visual field is part comes from the mind, not from the outside world. The outside world enters into the mind. Information about the outside world enters into the mind through the visual field. But the visual field comes from the mind. Yeah? Would Kant say that, in effect, there's only one sense, and that's just the appearance of the mind? Because you can lose your, your sight or your, your visual field, or not, not ever have it, and you still experience space through touch and not... Yeah, so in fact, there's a, believe it or not, there's a very precise answer to what you're asking, which is that our phrase common sense actually comes from Aquinas. And it doesn't mean, use your common sense. There, can, there aren't infinite order of infinities. Um, common sense in Aquinas, that's a phrase that Thomas Aquinas invented, sensus communis. And what it means is the thing in our minds that enables us to put a world together out of different senses so that the different sensory perceptions that we have, um, common sense is what brings them together and unifies them. This is actually, um, there's, there's a great book called Problems Out of Locke, um, a great book of philosophy. Do you know that one, Jen? Problems from Locke? Yeah. yeah. And one of the problems that from Locke, um, from John Locke, not the guy from Lost, but the real John Locke, um, who the guy from Lost is named after. Um, do you, did you guys know that? Yes. Yeah. What about Rousseau? You know who she's named after? Yeah, okay, good. Um, I think it was Hobbes. Sorry? <laughs> yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah. But the, Hobbes the tiger, not. Um, yeah. This is known as a causal theory of reference. What are the characters from Blade Runner? Deckard, yeah. That's the my mind. So ha here's the question. Hobbes wonders what would happen if a blind man, and then he actually found such a person, if, a, if someone who'd been blind from birth and who'd been taught to tell the time by feeling the hands of a clock, um, which is how blind people can tell the time, um, is feeling the disposition of the hands of a clock. What would happen if they regained their sight as adults? And there are examples of this, um, of people who are blind from birth who as adults become able to see. And um, Hobbes said that he was sure that they wouldn't be able to tell the time by looking at a clock after they learned to tell the time by feeling um, the hands of a clock. And um, it turns out not to be quite that simple, but I think that um, you sighted people can have the opposite experience, which is um, if you try to tell the shape of a letter, um, you know, someone gives you like a magnetic, a fridge magnet with the alphabet, um, if you try to tell the shape of a letter just by feeling it, um, if it's a really big fridge magnet, you can probably do some letters. You can tell that the O is round and so on. But it's much harder to do than you would think. Um, it's really hard to go from sense to sense, even if you have a lot of experience putting, fr playing with fridge magnets, putting them up on the fridge, and so on. 
um, it's very hard to go from sense to sense. Um, we have in our lives an idea that we're seeing the book hit the table and hearing the sound of the book hit the table, and we put that together into a single thing, book hits table. Um, but as William Blake says, you could not deduce from any senses that you have senses that you don't have. What he says in particular is that no one could deduce from three senses a fourth or a fifth sense. No, you couldn't tell. This is easy to see when it comes to tasting, for example, or to smelling. You couldn't tell from a world in which you only heard and touched and saw things that things might, if you didn't have a sense of taste, if you didn't have a sense of smell, you wouldn't know what a dog was doing when it sniffed. And you would have to tell yourself that it was like maybe its nostrils were kind of microscopic eyes. But you would have no idea what it was doing when it was sniffing at things if you didn't have a sense of smell. And what you couldn't do is say, oh, there must be some other sense that I don't know what it is, but I can deduce. You might say that theoretically by looking at a dog, just the way people eventually, but only very recently, realized that pigeons and other migratory birds can sense magnetic fields. Um, this was only discovered in the last generation or so, that they can sense magnetic fields, which is what enables them to navigate. Um, so how do you sense a magnetic field? Um, we don't know what that means, that they're sensing a magnetic field. Or we know what it means, but we don't know what it's like. We don't know what echolocation is like, which is what bats can do. People didn't believe that bats could do echolocation until the first, uh, I think around 1925 was when people first started thinking maybe that's what was going on with bats. Yes. Yeah, there are humans who are blind from very, very um, young ages who can use clicks to do echolocation. And there's a famous kid who could ride bike, his bike and actually play basketball by clicking and hearing the echoes come back. Um, he died, alas, but you can see him on YouTube. Um, there are interviews with him and his mother on YouTube. No, he had melanoma in his eyes. You mean while he was driving? No. He had melanoma um, when he was very young and eventually came back. Um, but he was in his late teens, I think, when he died. And it's quite amazing. The so interviews with him are quite amazing. What? So it goes. So it goes. Um, but so we pictured what he was doing, and the YouTube show or the films of him show pictures of him locating himself in a visual field, which is done through sonar. You know, that's what we do with ultrasound is we have machines that can turn sound into something visual. And we assume that somehow he was having a visual sense of the world, but there's no reason to assume that. He knew where stuff was by hearing it. And that's all we sighted people can know about him, is that he knew where stuff was by hearing it. But our desire to say he pictured it that's a Kantian desire. That's a desire to make his idea of where things were into something visually spatial, spatial in a visual sense. There are other ways that we have intuitions of space, in particular by bodily motion, but, and also by hearing. Um, 
but those intuitions of space aren't Euclidean. Euclid couldn't have invented geometry through hearing. Um, and so what Kant is saying is we have this Euclidean idea of space, but it's generated by the mind. And things that we see, therefore, enter into a visual field. And because they enter into a visual field, we see them as being spatial as well, as being spatial objects as well. Um, we put them, we overlay them in, by the same metric that our visual field is perceiving the world. Yeah? So is there existence? Like, is, it, is existence or matter part of um, the appearance? Well, for Kant, there is existence of the thing in itself, but we have no access to it. And we, we can't, there's no way to derive what that would be apart, separating it from our no, it's remember what Descartes said about extended substance. So we can't think extension without substance. We can't think substance without extension. These are real things, extension and substance. But um, we are limited, and Kant will say, empirical beings. So, there, so it may be that God does have um, immediate access to the thing in itself. And it may be that when we die, we will have immediate access to the thing in itself. Um, but there's no way of um, perceiving that as human beings. Um, so, our, so, the, so Kant has this, this idea of the structure of appearance. And the structure of appearance is that in order to make sense of what comes to us, we structure it. And that structure comes from us as well. Um, everything Kant says has become a research topic for modern experimental psychology. Um, most modern experimental psychologists have no idea that this comes out of Kant, but experimental psychology comes out of Kant. He was the inventor of that way of thinking about the world. By experimental psychology, I mean the kind of thing that happens when um, people at, when people tamper with, with your spatial intuitions in various ways um, and experiment on what kinds of tampering people will notice, how they'll respond to it, and so on. So your basic psych lab, you know, um, put on these weird glasses and um, look at that screen um, experiments, those all come out of Kant. Um, they all come out of Kant's ideas because they're all experiments in how we put the world together. Some of you know that we have neurons um, that are specifically tweaked to notice motion, others that are tweaked to notice colors, and others that are tweaked to notice um, edges. And when we see an object, our brains are putting those three things together. Yeah, Joy. Yeah, but the the uh, Kant. W wait, what? Why are you objecting to it? Okay, uh, just because like that. that like, Do you object to the idea that modern physics comes from Newton? No, no, I don't. Okay. But I, I, I object to. I mean, perhaps this is a dangerous thing to 
but I, I, I object to like the, that that cons like that. You can draw a direct line between cons and developing systems. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but you can. Um, that would be the history of ideas part of this course. Um, so the history of ideas part of this course. Do you want to say something about that, Abby? Yeah, but I wanted to say something with you. With me. Go, go for it. Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that you can draw a line, just like, you know, when you read poetry, you can say that because they read this person, their ideas, even subconsciously, must have come from there. But at the same time, there are some, like, very common facets of just, like, experience in life. Like, even if you haven't read anything, you will still maybe wonder about why when you move a certain way you feel a certain thing or whatever. Like there's converging ideas, I think. So it's not necessarily coming from cons, even though it could be. I think it's similar things, but much more <laughs> uh, And why is that different from what you were saying, Joy? Oh, that's exactly what oh, I was saying. Oh, that is exactly what you were saying. So you were converging. Um, <laughs> because Kant was the first person, okay, so understand that Kant was the first person to ask what does the mind have to be doing to put together a picture of the world the way it does? Um, so, and he really went deeply into that question and he gave a pretty detailed answer to it. Now, the psychologists who actually invented modern psychology in the 19th century, German and American and English, um, and I don't mean the psychoanalysts. I'm not talking about, although there's some French psychologists, but I'm not talking about that kind of psychology. But I'm talking about the people who invented experimental psychology did it as readers of Kant. Kant was the most important intellectual um, work that was being taught to all students in the German universities in the 19th century. Um, if you went to university in Germany in the 19th century, and if you were a psychologist, um, you did, if you were a German psychologist. If you went to um, university in the 19th century, you were steeped in Kant. Kant was the last person that everyone essentially agreed with. Um, essentially doesn't mean they agreed with him, but the last person that everyone took seriously. Um, the followers of Kant were weird in various ways, and some people thought they were totally great and absolutely better than Kant, and others thought that they were utter whackbirds. Um, but Kant is the last person whom everyone um, agreed was saying what was intellectually... Um, um, unavoidable. And so if you read the 19th century psychologists, if you read people like Wunsch, um, what you will see is that they are citing Kant as, the, as giving the problems that they're trying to solve and offering solutions that they are either trying to confirm or disconfirm. Um, and if you read, uh, and, and really, the, you, you should, if you read William James's Principles of Psychology, which is one of, which may be the one single most important um, key text in the development of modern psychology, um, you will see Kant on every page of the principles of psychology. It's not that they were unconsciously influenced by Kant. They were consciously and absolutely influenced by Kant. Now, I'm not saying that people now are, oh, yes, um, 
sometime when I was in high school, someone mentioned Kant, and that's why I became a psychologist, except that I repressed that fact because I'm a believe in psychoanalysis also. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that, that people who in psych labs now um, have any notion of anything that Kant was doing. I'm certainly not saying that. But I'm saying that the founders of modern psychology, of whom there are several but not many, the 19th century founders of modern psychology who did the first experiments and did those experiments in order to answer very basic questions about perception, they did it because they had read Kant and they said, we can actually test these things. So they weren't reading Kant in order to say the outside world doesn't exist and space is, um, is only a synthetic a priori and so on. That for them was very suggestive, but that's not what they were trying to, trying to test by doing psychology. They were trying to see how the mind puts the world together. And in order to do that, they would interfere in various ways with what we do when we perceive to see what that interference did to our perception of the world. Um, so this really is, there really is a very clear and direct line from Kant to modern psychology. Um, and of course other people would have asked the questions when the techniques were available. You know, um, once you have ways of studying brain lesions and so on, and modern medicine, um, of course this question would have arisen for other people. But Kant was the first person to suggest he was the first person to suggest a lot of things, but he was the first person to suggest that what the mind is always doing is processing information and trying to make it coherent. And the idea of, now, what Aquinas had said was that we had this sense in the mind called common sense. Um, a sixth sense, you know, you've all learned there are five senses. That turns out not to be true. There are many more than five senses that we have. In particular, do you know that? that mm -hmm. um, so what are the, what, what would you add to the five? One of them is, um, it's, I think it involves vision, but it's not sight. It's, it's an emotional response to, uh, to expressions. Okay, yeah, so. people experience it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can, can use their eyes. So they can still use their eyes expressively. Um, so what that's related to, just more generally, is the kinds of senses that we put on the analogy of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, um, and is that five? <laughs> um, is, um, yeah, so tasting, I think. Um, is the vestibular sense, which we talked about on Monday, that is, we know um, through perception of the fluid in our inner ears, we know whether what's, what's vertical and what isn't. Um, so you can't, the vestibular sense is a little bit different from the five external senses in that you can't really describe it um, as a sensation that you're having, you can only describe it as something that gives you knowledge. So you know when you're tilted. If you tilt your head, you know it. Um, you're not unless you're dizzy, you're not puzzled by what happens to the world when you tilt your head. The reason is that your brain knows from its perception of what's going on in your ears 
that you've tilted your head. That's not a perception that we feel the way we feel external senses, but it's nevertheless a sensory perception that we have. Yeah? But that doesn't sound like Yeah, no, 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 no. So it appears to your it appears to your mind that you've tilted your head. Don't don't get too stuck on that. Um, but it is interesting. Don't get unstuck on it either, because it is interesting that we can have what looks like direct knowledge, what to quote the flatline feels like direct knowledge while not feeling like anything. Um, and the vestibular sense has that. Now, if you ask why that is. Why there are senses that we are aware of as sensation, but at least one sense that we're not aware of as sensation, but simply as perception without sensation. And so that the only way we could even get a sense of what it means to have a vestibular system is by getting ourselves dizzy. Um, the answer would seem to be, maybe from an evolutionary standpoint, um, that the senses directed to the external world are senses that we can talk about what we're sensing. That is to say, um, if I tell you, look at that, you have to know what the word look means. And in order to know what the word look means, you have to have a sense not only of what you see, but of the fact that you're seeing. Same with hearing. Do you hear that sound? then it's not only knowing that there's something there, but knowing that the way you would know it is through the sensation of hearing. Taste this. Do you think it's spoiled? You have to have a sense not only of taste, but a sense of a sense of taste. Again, this is a question that Kant, we talked about this a little bit, but I'll say it again. Um, it's a question that comes up in Kant, one way it comes up is in the idea of seeing, which is that we not only see things, but we're aware that we're seeing. We see that we're seeing. Seeing isn't something only addressed to objects, but it's an experience that we have, the experience of seeing. So somehow we see that we're seeing, and as soon as we see that, we see that we see that we're seeing. And there's something very strange about seeing, but it's true about all five senses, which is not, we're not only aware of what they're senses of, but we're aware of them as senses. And that can, if you let that be a puzzling thing, which I urge you to do, it can be very puzzling. If you know the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, um, half his work is really about that fact, about our own experience of the fact that we're experiencing. Um, we don't experience the fact that we're experiencing our, the sensation coming, our sense of balance. We don't experience the fact that we're well balanced when we are. You experience it when it goes awry, but you don't experience it when you're not feeling dizzy, when your balance is fine. You don't experience balance the way you do experience sight. Yeah. Um, and this is, um, this is all sort of tied up, I guess, in, in proprioception. Yes. Control, yeah. Which is really interesting also because um, for proprioception um, is the, the sense of where your body is in space. Um, but it's a weird thing to talk about it as a sense, even I think more so than talking about the sense of your, orient, your orientation. 
mm -hmm. that I can have a sense that my arm is here. But that's that's something that even more so than you uh, having a sense like, oh, my head is tilted, but I don't perceive that as a sensation unless something is going wrong. Right. Is there, there there's not really a sensation we can even talk about in, in any way that my, I can't say I sense that my arm is here. That's, that's just saying I know that my arm is here. Mm -hmm. And so it's like almost a false sense that is constructed out of the brain uh, like keeping track of where stuff goes. Yeah, so so that's that's the seventh sense, um, which is there's the vestibular se sense or sense of balance, and there's proprioception. Yeah. But proprioception and the, the internal sense of space and balance, I think you need those because you're constantly supposed to be unconsciously regulated. Yes. So if you were conscious of like walking, it would be hard to do. Just like yeah. Yeah. And then you can choose what to do with that stimuli consciously. Yeah. So it's, it kind of makes sense that it would be different from consciousness versus Although you can pay attention proprioceptively also. That is, you know, when you're being taught a sport or to dance or something like that. But it's. You're, being, you're, you're not really paying attention to the liquid in your ears. No, you're paying attention to what your body is doing rather than how it feels. Yeah, exactly. But if someone t tells you about the sweet spot, for example, like, you know, you really want to hit the ball with the sweet spot of the racket, um, then there, that does get you part of the way to actual proprioception. Um, and that becomes a strange thing also. Um, prosthetics become a strange thing. Also, phantom limbs yeah. are, uh, are the, uh, the other side of that. Well, then how do you explain paying attention to the classroom? Because that's different than when you're being shown something. There, you know, you, you have to pay attention. You need to actively make yourself listen to what's going on. Yeah, um, but you're aware, I mean, t to take another famous example of um, the low-level awareness or what computer scientists call polling of the world, um, this is actually something Nietzsche was first interested in, is he was really interested in the fact that you were as aware of a sound stopping as of a sound starting. That is, there could be a background hum, and then it goes off. And people will wake up when that happens. That is, not wake up because something noisy happens, but because the noise stops. And so what that means is there's some part of you that's aware of it and perceives the change, even if the change is one of absence rather than further presence, perceives it as a presence. I that with the hum. Yeah. You don't notice it's there, but then it stops and you realize it was there before. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when the air conditioning goes off. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that there have been people through practicing a lot of meditation that have been able to sort of, I don't know, like dull or temporarily turn off the sense of proprioception, which they they know this happens because of brain scans. And when I was reading the article on this, I really sort of. I couldn't really imagine what exactly they were describing. Yeah. Well, so there are people who have various nerve injuries that prevent proprioceptive um, sensation of where their bodies are, and that can be very dangerous. Um, that is, uh, there are nerve injuries that can prevent you from realizing that um, your hand is actually just where this knife blade is coming down. Um, you know, generally, 
we could have our hand somewhere, not be seeing it, but see a knife blade coming in that direction, and we'd move our hand because we know it's there without having to see it. But if you lose proprioception, you wouldn't know it was there. Yeah. 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 I th that's right. I, I've certainly had that, and I think it especially, it especially helps if your hand is falling asleep. Um, but yeah, I have had that ex that experience. Yeah. That might be similar to the fact that we said sense change as far as sound is concerned, the flux, rather than like any given stimuli. Yeah. That because you're just waking up or just going to sleep, you've lost the 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 cause and effect or the understanding of the change, one, mm -hmm. one part of it, and so you can't any longer figure out where you were before or where you would react or whatever. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. Has anybody um, experienced a sort of proprioceptive sense when building with Legos? Or oh, yeah, like, um, the snap. Yeah, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's more than that, at least for me, and, and I may be strange, but perhaps other people have also noticed this. Is that you? Is that you build with something like that, and you start you start to perceive? Oh, this structure is unstable. Yeah. You start to like it's 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 like you're perceiving it as a part of your body almost. Oh yeah. You you feel like oh it's leaning that way. Yeah. But it's but it's not so much a sense of oh I am seeing it leaning. It's a sense of this feels unstable. Yeah. No, I think that that the uh, the the interface between our proprioceptive sense and our tool-using sense is really important. And, and um, you know, again, blind people um, using canes, they don't, if you describe what it's like to use a cane to feel your way around, I mean, this is true for sighted people also, and anyone who uses any kind of tools. Um, if you describe what it's like to, well, what's an example of this? Um, no one likes to scratch a blackboard. Um, but you can't make it better for yourself by, like, taking a piece of glass and saying, well, that way my nails don't have to scratch. I'll just scratch it with this piece of glass. Um, because even the piece, even talking about it um, <laughs> freaks people out. Um, I think it would be better with the glass. Yeah, do you? Yeah, like... Wait, so you know... No, 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 who has long nails? Yeah, are styrofoam being rubbed together? Yeah. I recall last year in an intro film, what Penny was just mentioning, we talked a bit about just how film is used to make that sort of perception. It, yeah. So, you know, you're necessarily just taking, isn't there, and so on the side note, um, don't know if I'd call it a disease or maybe a lack of a certain sense, but there are certain people who cannot feel physical pain. Yeah. Yeah, it's a um, deficit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Yeah, I know it's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there have been a lot of studies yeah. on this. Cause, um, yeah, the Times had an article, actually, uh, yeah, like, yeah, about, just about that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, senses are important, but what, what happens when really dangerous situations and 
be hurt that easy. Yeah. Until they die. Yeah. Yeah. Just about friends and worms, it's so cool. Because you know, like, the mirror thing that... Yeah. That yeah. It's pretty amazing, because then how do you draw the line between kinesthetic and visual? And why is visual more important than... Well, but again, notice what's happening. So, do people know what Abby's talking about? That if you, that some people with phantom limbs uh, get extremely cramped in their phantom limbs because they can't move them because they don't exist, and um, those cramps can be which which are not real can be. I mean, they are real because because um, the rest of the body responds to them, and of course, you are feeling real pain. Um, but those, but in order to do what you can do to your actual biological body, um, in order to relieve the pain, it turns out you have to be able to see the limb. But it's a phantom limb, so you can't see it. But if you set up a mirror so that you are looking and tricking not your higher order mind, you know that you're missing a limb, but tricking a part of your brain into thinking that it's now seeing both your arms when it only when before it only saw one then let's say you're feeling you don't have a right arm but you're feeling extreme pain your nails digging into your palms this is a famous example um, nails digging into your palms and your fist just incredibly tight and you can't open it but if you now put a mirror so that you, your left arm is reflected in the mirror and you see your right arm and then you open both your fists you can do it and what's happening is the brain is putting together what it sees through Aquinas's common sense. It's putting together what it sees with its other spatial experience of the world. And it's saying those two things go together. Um, and putting those things together um, is crucially important. There are drugs that will make you... Um, your, your visual and your motor yeah. um, experiences out of sync, go out of sync. As I mentioned, um, some dissociative anesthetics like ketamine mm-hmm. and psychodine um, that are like really dangerous, don't do these drugs, but like, they really are. Like, I mean, on a whole lot of different levels. Not that I have any experience, obviously. They, um, they, they mess up your, your sense of, like, of, of where your body is. Like, um, like people, they just have very weird movements, and they fall down a lot, and it's like they, they it's like they're dissociated from like being inside their body. Like to see what spiders do on that <laughs> Yeah. Well, but the the idea of dissociation there, the idea of dissociation is that you're not integrating your sensory information, so you're getting sensory information, but you're not integrating it. Um, one more comment, and then we have to go on with the rest of Kant. The phantom limb thing, the idea that one sense can be translated into another, is that the same sort of thing, like, with the, I think the word is synesthesia, which is when people can see sound? Yeah, so synesthesia is probably related to that. True synesthesia is very rare. Um, the, are you, who's synesthetic? How synesthetic are you? You taste words. There's. Can you taste music? Most synesthesia is sound and color, and there's actually an interesting. It's interesting 
that synesthetics with the same native language tend to associate the same colors with the same words. Um, and one of them happened to be an artist, and she wrote down these weird color ribbon patterns and showed it to people, and they all said, oh, that sounds lovely. Yes. Yeah. Um, but people from other, people who have other native languages, um, their synesthetic associations are different. Um, and so it does seem interestingly related to your first language. Yeah. Like, like every, like most people who are synesthetic see the synesthetic, see A as red, for example, yeah. which is really true, at least for me. So. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see A as red, too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think That's native English speakers tend to. With yeah. Traits. Yeah. All right. So that's these are all ways. So these are. So you guys are demonstrating that we can have an infinitely long conversation about this, which makes it relevant to the class. Right. Nice. Okay. I know, I can see that. So that's how we prove transfinite sets. That'll be the second question on your final. Yeah, I just showed it. It's, it's contrast diagonalization proof. It's really cool. Um, all right. So Kant now has said that the brain is, let, let's put it this way. Um, the mind, not the brain, the mind is extremely active in its construction of the world. Um, that activity is only felt as activity to the extent that we are relying on the idea of cause. That there are things that we cause to happen in our perception and things that are um, therefore picked out as not what we're causing to happen. And we are able to establish them, concentrate on them, stabilize them, bring them into our field of understanding through our, what Freud will call, reality testing, causing certain things and seeing what kind of, of um, resistance or what kind of friction or what kind of inertia our own causal powers meet up with when we're interacting with the sensory information that we're getting. Yeah. So are there three things going on? We've got what's real, the appearance of it, and something creating that appearance? Yes, precisely. A perception Well, there's, there's an appearance which is partly coming from information that comes from outside and partly coming from our processing of that information. And we're in control of the processing part and it's because we're in control of the processing part um, that we do the processing. The processing is, is, is a dynamic fluctuation of our control of what we're perceiving. Are, are we um, usually in charge of it, though? Like... Well, uh, something in our minds is. Not, not whatever our higher order, yeah. this is who I am. It's yeah. No, it's, a, it's occurring at unconscious in the psychological, not the psychoanalytic sense yeah, yeah. levels. Um, those things overlap, but here in the psychological, more than the, psych, the, the experimental psychological um, sense. Um, okay, so that for Kant is extremely important because it shows that the category, or he wouldn't use the word category, but the idea of cause 
um, of the possibility of causing things um, enters into our perception of the world. Now, in the second critique, the critique of practical reason, or of pure practical reason, as he originally um, wanted to call it, um, what he wants to do is say, so if we have wills, as it seems that we believe we do in order to perceive the world, we at least have to believe that we are um, interacting dynamically with information that we're getting. If we therefore have a will, um, first of all, that would be a good thing. It would be a good thing because having a will would give us moral autonomy. Um, would make us moral beings rather than simple biological beings. And being a moral being is almost, by definition, a morally good thing. Because if we were not moral beings, we couldn't be morally good. So we at least have the possibility, there is at least the possibility of being moral beings, being something higher than simply physical objects in, or biological objects in a biological world if we have wills. Because it's clear that what it means to be moral is to exercise our wills, it's clear to Kant, is to exercise our wills in favor of the good, in favor of things that are good. So what he begins, what he's shown in the Critique of Pure Reason, and what he now will focus very hard on in the Critique of Judgment, is it's at least possible that we have free will. There's nothing that makes that impossible. Yeah? It's kind of like the Faust Psychological Graph, the humanoid Cylons. Yes. I'm only in season two right now, and I'm halfway through, but they were already on Cobalt and the other version of Sharon. Yeah. You know, has decided to help them. I don't know what I'm watching. Probably think I saw like half of the first episode. Well, wait till you see the last episode. I've already seen the end of the You've last episode. You've seen the last episode? Um, my don't friend, talk about it. I, I won't haven't tell seen you. it. Um, but to the whole idea it's not the humans of, at their best. She has her whole, whole speech about how this is my choice. I do have free will. Yes. And you know, she offers to help them, and it's do we trust her? Is she just literally a machine? Yeah. Okay, now notice I'm not saying this comes straight out of Kant. No. Um, but it's it's um, it's in harmony with Kant. Yeah. Okay. So if we have wills, then there's a possibility that we're moral beings. So we should want to be moral beings, almost by definition. We should want to be moral beings. Um, so what? So here Kant asks the Pascalian question, which is, what would it be best for us to believe? That is, what truth would be best? And the truth that would be best would be that we're moral beings. And um, what would it take for us to be moral beings? It would take our having free wills, because if, we don't, if you don't have a free will, you can't be a moral being. If we had free will, what is it that we should will? What is the first thing that we should will if we had free will? We, he doesn't know whether we do or not. We don't know whether we do or not. But if we had free will, what is the first thing that we should will? Um, 
if we have free will, what is the first thing that we should will? And his answer again is tautologous. We should will ourselves to have free will. And we should will ourselves to believe that we have free will. We therefore, whether we have free will or not, he says, we have a moral obligation to believe that we do and to believe that we are freely believing that we do. Whether we do or not then becomes irrelevant. Um, it can't be proved, it can't be disproved. However, for there to be morality, we should believe in our own free will and so act as though we have free will. What's the second thing we should do if we do that? That what we perceive, our minds are certainly um, causing some of the flux that we're seeing. So the question is, do we have control over the causality in our own mind? Um, is our will something that's just operating autonomously and automatically? Or is it something that we have control of? There are arguments which I think are complete BS, but there are arguments against free will that people like um, Daniel Dennett give, um, which say, um, you know, you strap people up to fMRIs and um, you say, okay, um, at some point, pick up your hand, and at the point where and um, look at where the clock, um, where a second hand is pointing at the moment that you decide to pick up your hand. So people will look at the second hand and then they'll decide to pick up their hand and they'll note just where the second hand was when they decided to pick up their hand and then it will say, ah, but look, the fMRI showed that your brain was gearing up to pick up your hand before, you know, something like 50 microseconds before the second hand reached the place where you thought you were deciding it. So you weren't deciding some biochemical process in your brain was doing it, and then you, whatever you are, which is really nothing, um, just kind of decided, oh yes, I'm doing that. So it was happening anyhow, and you decided that you were the person in charge. Oh my God, that. Isn't that argument a lot like waging that you have free will? Yes. It's very similar to, the, the, to Pascal's wager, except, except deeper. coming from the point of view of someone who is an atheist, it sounds a lot more logical in many yes. ways than... Yeah. Big man in the sky? Yes. Yeah. And it's wagering, it's it's not so much wagering you have free will, which which is what people were, a lot of you were troubled by in Pascal, was that you were only looking for the um, payoffs if you wagered on belief in God. But for Kant, what's so elegant about his argument is that it's not a wager that you have free will. Wager is the wrong word. It's a demand that you're making of yourself to have free will because that would be morally right. And so that very demand is one that you should wish to ascribe to your own free will. And so you demand of yourself that you believe that you want free will because you are willing yourself to want free will because that's your choice is, to, is that it should be your choice. So it's much more tightly self-referential than anything in Pascal. There's no reward outside which will then be an incentive to you. The thing is that your choice to believe in free will 
is the first example of your belief in free will. Well, it's except it's not quite reward. Yeah. In a way, feeling good about yourself. Yeah, but it's virtue as its own reward to use to use the proverb. Yeah. Is there a one-to-one correspondence between um, what exists? as far as con is concerned, and our perception? No, not there at all. Isn't. No. So then that would mean that some things, or if since there's no one-to-one correspondence, you could say everything we perceive um, is due to our minds rather than to existence. Um, he thinks that there has to be something um, which is causing, and in, in this way he's a little bit like Descartes, there has to be something which is causing perception. Um, but there doesn't have to be, you know, it's in the same way that there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between objects on a TV screen um, and the objects that you see in your mind. On a TV screen, you're seeing a TV screen. In your mind, you're seeing 18 different people and, uh, and um, some rocks that are falling on them. But in the world, all you're seeing is a TV screen. Um, so there isn't one-to-one correspondence, but there is something that is causing perception that he does think. Um, okay, so we are to will our own freedom. And having done that, the second um, really important thing to um, come out of that is to respect the freedom of the will. That is to say that moral beings are those who have freedom. Freedom is the most important thing to have. Moral beings are those who have freedom. Um, Moral beings, those who have freedom are moral beings. And what that means is there is nothing higher that we can conceive as an object of moral duty than beings with free wills, beings like us. And so here's where comes Kant's famous categorical imperative. So the categorical imperative, that is an imperative which is categorically the case, can never be violated, is famously to treat others not as means only, but as ends in themselves. Um, The famous phrase is not as means only, but as ends also. Um, That is, every other human being is an end in him or herself, and not only a means to your own ends. So some people um, famously overdo this and think that if you ever treat another person as a means to an end, um, you're sinning against Kantian morality. So that if you hail a taxi and ask them to take you to the airport, you're treating the taxi driver as a means to your own end which is to get to the airport. Um, And that's just silly. Um, But if you only think of someone as a servant, if you only think of them as a means to to your own ends and not as an end in themselves, then you are failing. Um, the most crucial moral test there is. Yeah. What does it mean to understand that? To understand that, well, I think it's something that we're very familiar with in liberal democracy. Um, but it, no, I do. I mean, it's 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 an, the ideology. I don't mean I don't mean liberal as in Democrat versus Republican. I mean um, liberal as in respect for the individual. Um, that people are people. 
um, that a person is a person. It's absolute respect for personhood. Um, never seeing a person as um, simply a way for you to get what you want. Um, what it means not to treat a person as an end in himself is to say, okay, I really need to take this fort, and if I send one of my soldiers around the back where I'm sure he'll be killed, but that'll distract the enemy's... Um, um, that'll distract the enemy from, from what I want to do on the other side of things. Um, so I tell the soldier, you just go around the back and try and break into the fort there. I'm treating that soldier as a means. So the, so the, the most common way of treating people as means is in military contexts where it's inevitable. Um, but that's what, it, that's what happens is when you send people on suicide missions, um, when you send them into forlorn hopes, um, as the technical term goes, you're treating them as means. Now, there is a way to justify that, right, Jen? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say something about autonomy. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just like, if you think about um, what it is to be autonomous, which is that well, you know, we can have our own Yeah. But in other words, if, but but in another sense, if you said to them like, "Oh, can you also do this thing because you're my friend and, and you care about me," then you see them as a friend who is then doing this favor, but it's not a laundry doer or a taxi driver in in a um, in a sense that strips them of the fact that they are also a rational being with their own ends to see. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, the main. About what? Like the counterpoint to your military. Yeah. Oh, you mean how you would? Well, the argument against it is to is, um, for example, in military ceremonies, where anyone you know giving the purple heart to a dead person, um, that is to say that at least ceremonially, um, there's an attempt to remedy the absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, um, unavoidable fact that um, armies are treated as machines with parts, some of which um, are designed to break off in various ways, um, are designed to be killed, um, are designed to, to um, draw fire, let's say, with the inevitable result that some people will be killed in or for strategic purposes. So what do you do with the dead? Well, one thing you do is you don't celebrate the fact that that worked um, because then you're entirely treating them as means. Oh, that was so clever what we did by fainting on the right flank so that the Germans came and killed um, you know, a thousand of our troops on the right flank, but that opened um, a way for us to go charging down the middle. Um, you can say... It worked, and we minimize casualties that way, but we still grieve the dead. So, you know, some people will think that's enough. Some people will think it isn't. Um, but honoring the dead is one way of insisting that you are not treating them as means only. Um, and simply celebrating is treating them as means only. Um, the, 
interesting result is, I mean, just to just to push this to to um, a really interesting conclusion. Um, what it means to treat someone as an end in, in themselves is to care that they understand why they're, you're doing to them what you're doing, even if you hate them, even if what you're doing to them is, to, um, is, is something that, that they really don't want done. And Kant's example of this, or at least some interpreters of Kant, is an argument for the death penalty. Not against the death penalty, for the death penalty. So Kant, or at least some interpreters of Kant, um, say that the reason a murderer should be put to death is that if you fail to put a murderer to death, someone who, who engages in first-degree murder, if you just throw them into solitary and, and throw, the, throw away the key, you are failing to respect them as a human being. What you're saying is they're an animal, and they just have to be um, kept locked up and away from other human beings. So you put them into solitary confinement, you throw away the key, um, you feed them their slops or whatever, and you don't execute them. And that refusal to execute is dehumanizing to them. If you execute them, what you are saying to them is, you're a human being, and therefore, in order for me to respect the fact that you're a human being, you have to pay the penalty that only a human has to pay. It's a penalty that you're paying. It's not that we're putting you to death as a convenience, but as a penalty, because you, a human being, did this thing wrong. Because, because the, ends, the ends aren't to keep the, the society safe or, or to, right. to kill Good. them. Exactly. The ends are to respect them as the individual. Exactly. The means to achieve the safety. Right. No, they're not, but that doesn't matter. It's disrespectful to treat them as though all they care is about their own pleasure. Yeah. So doesn't that stretch over to where you can say you robbed someone, so we're going to kill you? But doesn't that make the whole concept of jail immoral by Kant's standards and it may, no, it makes the idea of jail as simply a way of, um, of keeping order rather than of punishing um, immoral. That is that punishment, the idea of punishment, um, there's a great essay by P.F. Strawson um, called Freedom and Resentment. And what he's talking about, I'm not going to be, we won't have time. We'll pick this up on Monday. No, we'll pick it up on Monday. Hold, hold that thought. But what Strawson says in Freedom and Resentment is that this is an argument for the freedom of the will. Do you know this essay? Yeah. So it's essentially an argument for the freedom of the will, that we believe in it. And here's how you know you believe in it. That if people do shitty things to you, you resent them for it. But if people do shitty things because they have brain damage or because um, they're, they're some terrible biochemical problem with them because in some sense they're, they're, you don't um, think of them as responsible for what they've done. You don't resent them for it. You may try to put them away. You may try to uh, you know, put them in an institution where they can't hurt anyone, but you don't resent them. And the idea of resentment is an idea of respect. That is, 
when you want to punish someone as opposed to simply prevent them from doing more damage. Punishment is a sign of respect. It means I expect you to see when I punish you, I expect you to see what it is that you deserve given what you've done. How much you've hurt other people. How much damage you've done. I want you to understand that. It's not just you've done this damage and so we're, we're going to get rid of you so that you can't do any more. It's you need to understand what you've done, which is a sign of respect for them as a human being. And that's a Kantian idea and I think a very deep one. I, wait, I said I wouldn't take questions. And You're number four in line. So hold the thought. We'll talk more about this on Monday. Read Mont Blanc. It wasn't a question. It was more of a comment. Okay. Locking them up is a punishment. Yeah. But it, but it has to be meant as a punishment. Yeah, no, it usually is. That's the point. It, it is usually meant as a punishment, um, which is a sign that it is a basic human impulse to treat others as ends in themselves. But the idea is that if you can say punishment is treating someone as an end in himself, um, you're getting an idea as to what Kant is saying.